0: Uh, We come to a passage that I believe is one of the most profound and moving passages in Scripture. I've um, wanted to preach on this text for many, many decades, and I never have. And so, at the same time, I come to it with fear and trembling because we are on most holy ground here with this text. So, follow as I read... From Exodus chapter 33 beginning at verse 18 down through chapter 34 and verse 9. Moses has been praying up till now that God would restore his people after the golden calf incident. That Moses could know him and his ways. And then verse 18, Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now the Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones. And I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. He's referring to the Ten Commandments. So be ready by morning and come up to the mountain, to Mount Sinai. And present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of the mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him. As he called upon the name of the Lord. And then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. And yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray. Let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your own possession. Although any uh, newlyweds in our midst might um, be puzzled over this and not understand it, those of us who have been married for some decades know that romance is not an automatic part of marriage. It's not effortless to keep the romantic fires burning. You have to give it some deliberate forethought and attention over the years. And you know it's the same spiritually. To keep your relationship with the Lord fresh and vital over the long haul is not an automatic thing. It requires some foresight. It requires some effort and constant attention. And it's easy to lapse into complacency, even with good things. For example, yep, did my quiet time, check. Went to church, check. Uh, gave money to missions, check. And you're doing all the right things, but your your fervency, your love, your your desire to know God has kind of just sort of lapsed into Ho-hum. Complacency. I've always been amazed that when the Apostle Paul wrote his little letter to the Philippians, he had been a believer about 25 years. And we're not talking about your Joe Average believer. This is the Apostle Paul. 25 years into it, it was clear that Paul was not resting in his experiences. I mean, this is the man, he had performed many mighty miracles. He'd had several encounters with the risen Lord. He'd been caught up to the third heaven. And yet, he says in Philippians that he wanted to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. And then he adds, in Philippians 3.12, not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God In Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say that all of us should have that same attitude. We all need to fight all the time against spiritual complacency. And we see the same thing here in Moses' experience with the Lord in our text. And the lesson is that no matter where you're at spiritually, you should desire to go deeper with God. And since God is infinite, <clears throat> you can't ever say, well, I know God now. It's all done, you know, we, we're best buddies, we know each other thoroughly. Uh, there's always more and always more, so press on. I am only skimming this text, there's far more I could have covered, but I'm going to limit myself to five ways that you can go deeper with God. And I believe the first way to go deeper with God is uh, you need a holy dissatisfaction with where you're at. And we see that in Moses' prayer Show me your glory. Show me your glory. Now, there's a sense in which all of us should be content with the Lord. Psalm 23 expresses that The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Um, Got everything we need in the Lord. Uh, 2 Peter 1.3 says in him, we have everything necessary for life and godliness. So there's that sense, yeah, I'm satisfied with the Lord. But at the same time, we know that there are unfathomable riches in Christ. And so with Moses, we should pray as he does back in chapter 33 In verse 13, he says, Now therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you. That's the same prayer that Paul has in Philippians 3. That I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. And in verse 17 of chapter 33, the Lord assured Moses, I'll do it. You've got my word, I'll do that. But that wasn't enough. And so Moses goes on in verse 18 and says, I pray you, show me your glory. And that wasn't a prayer for more material goods. It wasn't a prayer for good health. It wasn't even a prayer that his ministry would be very fruitful and successive. It's a prayer to know God more deeply. Show me your glory. And when I read that, I want to ask Moses, what more could you want? I mean, you're the man who talked with God at the burning bush where God revealed His name to you. I am who I am. And you're the man who marched in there before Pharaoh and saw God do ten plagues on the land of Egypt. Egypt. And you're the guy that led Israel out and then saw the Red Sea part so that Israel marched through and Pharaoh's army perished in the sea closing back over on them. And you're the man who's been eating manna every morning that God provided and drinking water out in this barren desert that flowed out of the rock that you struck in in obedience to God's commandment. And you're the guy who went up on the mountain with 70 of the elders of Israel and saw ate and drank in God's presence and saw something of His glory up there. And, and you've you've just spent 40 days on the mountain with God where the mountain was quaking and there were clouds and thunder and lightning and it was a fearful thing for all the people and you were right up there with God and He spoke to you and gave you the Ten Commandments. And you're the man who used to go out to the tent of meeting as we saw last time in chapter 33. And God spoke with you there face to face as a man does with his friend. Moses, what more could a man want? I want to see his glory. I want to see his glory in a deeper way. A.W. Pink observed, this is both the longing of the redeemed and the goal of their redemption. And you get to the end of the Bible and you see that in Revelation chapter 21 verses 22 and 23, the Apostle John, having that vision of the new Jerusalem, said, I saw no temple in it for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. Now in reply to Moses' request to see God's glory, the Lord in verse 19 replies, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and show compassion on whom I show compassion. Now the Lord's name refers to all that He is and all that He does. It's the sum, in other words, of all of His attributes and all of His actions. It's who God is. But then the Lord qualifies His reply in verse 20. He says, uh, but you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And then he goes on to tell Moses in verse 21 down through verse 23, Behold, there's a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about that when my glory is passing by, that I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by then I'll take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so the Lord promises here both to cover Moses so that he won't die from the experience and yet to reveal at least a glimpse of himself to Moses. And of course, hand, back, face, all of those are what are called anthropomorphisms. They are human ways that we Think about God, even though God is spirit and he has no literal face, hand, back, front, any of that. But it's just to give us an understanding of what God is saying he's going to do here. Uh, we have two famous uh, old hymns that come from this text. Augustus Toplady wrote, Rock of Ages, Clef for Me, Let Me Hide Myself and Thee. And then Fanny Crosby, and we sang just a brief part of her song, he hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock, uh, where rivers of water I see, and so on. Now, Christ is the rock who followed Israel through the wilderness, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.4. Technically, that refers to the rock that Moses struck where the water flowed out, but I think by a legitimate extension we can say that it also refers to this rock, And so the picture is God is hiding Moses in Christ, where in Christ he gets a glimpse of God's greater glory than he's had before. When you get to the New Testament, in John chapter 1 and verse 14, the Apostle John says, The Word, referring to Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And I think he's referring to his experience with Peter and James on the mountain when they saw the glory of Jesus opened up to them there in the cloud. Um, That word dwelt among us is literally tabernacled. And we're going to look more at that next week in Exodus 40 when we look at the tabernacle. But... Jesus became God's dwelling place among us so that we could get a glimpse of God's glory in Christ. Remember in the upper room, Philip asked a dumb question, which I'm glad he asked because I would have asked the same thing and this way I know the answer. He, he said to Jesus there, uh, Lord, show us the Father And Jesus, I think, somewhat with his head shaking, said, Have I been so long with you, and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How then can you say, show us the Father? And so by coming to know Jesus more deeply, we see more of the glory of the Father. We come to know the Father more deeply. And as you spend time daily, as I hope you do in God's Word, just begin it with a prayer. Lord, would You be kind enough to reveal more of Christ to my soul from Your Word. Jesus is the theme of all of Scripture. And so no matter how long you've been a Christian, there's more. There's always more. And I think we'll say that in heaven. Been there 10,000 years and we'll all look at one another and say, oh, there's more. There's more of Jesus that we can come to know. So the first way to go deeper with God is you need to have this holy dissatisfaction with where you're at, where you say, Lord, more. Show me more. Secondly, to go deeper with God, you need to understand His abundant goodness. When Moses asked to see God's glory here, it's interesting. God does not give him a vision of His throne room with those awesome seraphim standing there covering their face with their wings and crying out, holy, 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 as Isaiah got that vision in Isaiah 6. And he doesn't give him a vision of of thunder and lightning and then those those four very scary looking creatures and all the whirring wheels and everything that you read in Ezekiel chapter 1 that Ezekiel saw. Instead, Note it well, God gives Moses a theology lesson. He gives him propositional revelation about his attributes. You want to see my glory? Uh, You want to see me in my glory? Okay, let me tell you about my attributes. Tell you who I am. Especially as they relate to saving sinners. And so first the Lord says in verse uh, verse 19 of chapter 33, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you, and I'm going to proclaim the name of the Lord before you. God's goodness is an attribute that undergirds, underlies all of his attributes. Any one of his attributes, every one of his attributes is good. Uh, And it shows that in his person and in all that he does, he is good toward his creation. And out of his good essence, good actions flow. Um, Stephen Charnock, a Puritan, wrote a two-volume treatise called The Existence and Attributes of God. Not easy reading, but certainly a wealth of reading. And he devotes no less than 146 pages to the goodness of God. One of my retirement goals is to read that again when I have time. I've read it once, but it's just too much there to uh, read. But anyway, with regard to God's uh, relation to His creation, Charnock says this, The goodness of God is that perfection of God whereby He delights in His works and is beneficial to them. Now it's significant that in the Garden of Eden, when Satan wanted to tempt Eve, the first attribute of God that he tried to present some doubt about was the goodness of God. Remember, he says to Eve there in Genesis 3-1, Indeed, has God said... You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now that was a lie. God hadn't said that. He only said one tree. But Satan's trying to plant doubts about, This God you you claim to know and serve isn't very good. And he goes on in verse 5, And he says, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, Knowing good and evil. In other words, he's saying, God's trying by His commandments To take your fun away. To take away something good from you. God knows if you eat that tree, you're going to be just like him. Wouldn't you like to be like him? Okay, go ahead. And she took the bait, and we all suffer the consequences, as you know. But Satan's been using the same tactic ever since. Because if he can get you to doubt the goodness of God in your life, or in this world, you won't trust him. Who wants to trust a God who isn't good? you back off from that kind of a god. Now Satan especially uses that tactic when you're going through trials. So be on guard. If you're in a time of trial, 1 Peter says in verses chapter 5 verses 8 and 9, be of sober spirit Be on the alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter is writing to a suffering church. Christians were being persecuted. Some of them were being martyred. And then he goes on and he says, but resist him. Firm in your faith. Why do you need faith in a time of trial? Because Satan comes and says, look, if your God was really good, you wouldn't be going through this. If he really cared for you, you know, you wouldn't have this trial. And he gets you to doubt God. So Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith. He goes on to talk about the eternal glory that we're going to share with Jesus someday. So the point is, even if you die a martyr's death, you have glory in heaven you can't even imagine. And Paul presents the same argument in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 He says, for momentary light affliction. Stop right there. You know what momentary light affliction was for Paul? Beaten five times with rods. Or or, I think it's five times with 39 lashes. Three times with rods. Shipwrecked three times. Night and a day spent in the deep. Once he was stoned with stones and left for dead. Momentary light affliction is producing for us An eternal weight of glory that is far beyond all comparison. So, resist the devil when you're going through trials. Focus on the glory that waits to be revealed to us when Jesus returns or when we go to be with him. Now, when the Lord passes by Moses, he's hidden there in the cleft of the rock in chapter 34. He further proclaims his goodness in verses 6 and 7. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Oh, I love that. Not just in loving kindness and truth, but when God says He's abounding in loving kindness and truth, you know He's really abounding. (laughs) Just endless. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands? who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, he will know by, by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Those verses are part of them, at least, are cited at least seven other times in the Old Testament and alluded to another five times. They serve as kind of a basic understanding of who God really is in His character. And this is the most thorough revelation God has given of Himself yet in Scripture, right here. First of all, God's goodness includes His compassion. And we saw that in Psalm 103, verse 8, which we read earlier. And David is citing there, Exodus 30, uh, 34, actually, in verse 6. And then he adds... Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. The picture I get there is of a compassionate father. And he's got a three-year-old who's acting up. And the kid's tired and he's hungry. And rather than lashing out at him angrily this compassionate dad scoops the little guy up in his arms and he says, look, I know you're tired and I know you're hungry and we're going to take care of that and and meet your needs as soon as we can. So calm down and be with us. And he's compassionate because he knows that little boy's capabilities. He remembers that he's just a three-year-old and he needs his compassion. That's the picture of God dealing with us. God's goodness, Moses says, also includes His grace. And I'll say more on that in a moment, but for now, just let me say, God's grace means His undeserved favor. We deserve God's wrath for our sin. God forgives our sins, as we'll see in a moment. God shows us His goodness and undeserved favor. That's His grace through Christ who died for us. And here, certainly Israel deserved to be disowned by God. They just had the golden calf incident. And God told Moses, you remember, get out of the way, let me just wipe this people out, we'll start over with you. And Moses went to prayer and pleaded with God, no God, don't, don't do that. Show them your grace. And so here, God graciously tells Moses, "All right, get some new slabs of stone and come up on the mountain. And I'm going to renew the covenant. They don't deserve it. But that's my grace. Let's do it all over again. God's goodness also means that He's slow to anger. He's patient. He doesn't yell at us every time we mess up. Now, it doesn't say He's never angry. I think sometimes when even His people mess up again and again and again and again and they don't get it, Yes, God is angry. His anger, we'll see in the book of Numbers, burns against His people for their incessant complaining. But He is patient. He is slow to anger. And then God's goodness also means He is abounding in loving kindness and truth. Loving kindness refers to God's loyal love to His people which as we saw in Psalm 136 is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. Truth also means faithfulness and it means God is true to Himself. He is the standard of truth. If it doesn't conform to God, it's not true. And God never varies from Himself. He is unchanging and consistent and so we can trust Him that He is faithful to keep His word. Now, His goodness also includes His forgiveness, and I'm going to comment on that in just a moment. So, we've seen then, first of all, to go deeper with God, you need this holy dissatisfaction that says, God, I want to see more of Your glory. Secondly, we need to understand God's abundant goodness toward us, which includes all of these attributes. Thirdly, to go deeper with God, you need to understand His sovereign grace. And it's significant, I believe that when Moses asked to see God's glory in Exodus 33, 18, the very first thing that God reveals to him of a glimpse of His glory in verse 19 is this. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. May I say there are many... Dear sincere Christian people who think that God is obligated to show compassion to everyone, that God is obligated to be gracious to everyone. That's not what he told Moses right out of the get go here. God says, I am sovereign and I will show my grace to whom I will show my grace. He didn't show it to Pharaoh. He showed it to Israel. And I will show compassion on whom I show compassion. And so, to know the Sovereign Lord, this is first right out of the uh, of, of God's revelation here. And if you deny that truth about God, you are going to detract from His glory. Show me your glory. Here's my glory. I'm gracious to whom I'm gracious. I'm compassionate to whom I show compassion. That's part of his glory. The Apostle Paul cites that verse, Exodus 33:19 in Romans chapter 9 and verse 15, where he is talking about how God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. And... Then Paul explains in Romans 9:16 through 18, and he says this, So then, it, that is salvation is the context, does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs. That refers to human willpower and human strength, but it depends on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, he's citing here from Exodus 9, and that my name may be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Paul's conclusion, So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. So he is sovereign in dispensing his grace In his compassion. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a wonderful book on revival. And in commenting on our text, he says this. This is as much a, a part of God as everything else. And you must not leave it out. It means that our salvation is entirely and altogether by the grace of God. It is not in any sense dependent on anything in us. It is indeed in spite of us. It is entirely of God's own will. And he is not under obligation to anybody. Now he goes on, and I didn't have time to quote it, but he goes on to acknowledge most of us, all of us, don't like that. We kind of fight against that truth. And then he adds this. Be careful what you're doing, my friend, if you're fighting against this. You are entirely in God's hands. You know nothing about him apart from that which he has graciously been pleased to reveal. And this is what he has revealed. So don't dodge this truth. A lot of people do that. They get to Romans 9, they skip it and move on. It's part of God's Word. Don't dodge it or you're going to miss a fundamental revelation of who God really is. And you won't understand adequately the salvation He freely has granted to us in Christ. And you're going to miss seeing part of His glory. And, as Paul argues at the end of Romans chapter 8, you're going to undermine a major part of the assurance of salvation that we can have if you take away this truth. So, to go deeper with God, first of all, a holy dissatisfaction with where you're at. Secondly, understand His abundant goodness. Thirdly, understand His sovereign grace. Fourthly, to go deeper with God, you need to understand His holiness, His forgiveness, and His justice. Coming back to verse 7 of chapter 34. God forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Those three Hebrew words, translated iniquity, transgression, and sin, have a slightly different nuance in Hebrew Uh, Iniquity means to turn aside from uh, that which is right. Transgression is a little more defiant, violating God's covenant. Whereas sin is just a catch-all general term for moral failure. I think God piles them up, though, for a reason. And that is to show us this wonderful truth. Your many, many, many sins, whatever variety they may be, Cannot outsin the grace of God. There ought to be an amen there. Amen. <laughs> Our sin can never exceed God's willingness to forgive through Christ. And that is the best news in the whole world. You remember how the Apostle Paul said, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet. I was the chief of sinners, and yet I found mercy. And if Paul got it, then you haven't disqualified yourself yet by all your sins. Flee to Jesus Christ today, and you will find the abundant loving kindness and mercy and forgiveness of our gracious Lord. Now probably most of you, like me, wish that verse 7 stopped right there. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Amen. Close your Bible. Let's go home. doesn't do that though, does it? The Lord adds, Yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And that reflects God's holiness and his justice. And let me remind you, those things are part of his goodness. If God were not holy and if he were not just, he would not be a good God at all. So he has to maintain his holiness and his justice to be good. Let me illustrate that. God forbid, but say a criminal murdered your mother so he could steal her purse and get the money for drug money. And he goes in before a judge, and the judge says, you know, this poor man, he's had a rough childhood, and we need to understand, you know, that, and we need to be nice to this poor man. And so the penalty I'm going to impose on him is a week of community service, and then Would you please try not to do that again to anybody else? Case dismissed. You would be rightly outraged. You would just say, that is not a good judge. And why is he not a good judge? Because he did not uphold holiness and justice. There should be a commensurate penalty for that violent crime. God has decreed as the sovereign judge of all flesh, The wages of sin is death. And he doesn't just mean physical death. He means eternal separation from God in what the the book of Revelation calls the second death in the lake of fire. And that's not a very pleasant doctrine, let me be honest. But you cannot believe in Jesus and deny the eternality of hell. Because Jesus taught it over and over again. And he again is showing us the Father. Showing us the Father. And so, to follow Jesus means we have to submit to him regarding forgiveness, yes, amen. But also regarding holiness. All sin will be judged. That's justice. And to deny any of those means he is not the good God the Bible says he is. Now you say, yeah, but what about the last part of that verse? Is God unfair to visit the sins of the children, I mean the fathers, unto the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation? Now I hope you realize that by asking that very question, I just answered it. Is God unfair? God forbid. God never, ever is unfair. He is totally fair and just. And every sinner will be fairly judged for his or her own sin, however bad. But a simple fact of living in this fallen world is our sins affect others, especially those who are close to us. If you were to live right now in North Korea, the sins of an evil dictator there would affect you greatly. You might have died by now if you were a Christian. Many of our brothers and sisters are in horrible concentration camps there because they got caught with a Bible. So the sins of one man affect many. The sins of abusive parents wound their children terribly. Some of you are carrying those wounds. And sometimes the sins of the parents go to the children, the children perpetuate the sins on their children, and the cycle goes on and on. Now, critics come along and say, what kind of a loving God do you have that allows a little kid to be abused? And my retort to that is this, how do you solve the problem by removing God? In other words, if you take God out of the equation, say there is no God, then we're in this world of blind fate. Tough luck, kid. You you know, your parents were abusive. And there's no hope. It is only when we inject God and the gospel that God is merciful to forgive sinners that there's hope for those abused children. And that's our message. The cycle can be broken when children hear the good news about Jesus and turn to him and they can forgive those abusive parents and tell those parents the mercy of God. And and they can tell their own children and show them the love of Christ by breaking that cycle of abuse, then there's hope. And that's why Paul writes in Second Corinthians five seventeen, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, New things have come. Or as we read in our text in verse 7, God keeps loving kindness for thousands. Our God is a God of mercy. And so, whatever your background, however many sins you may have piled up, however many sins your parents committed against you, if you come to Christ today, you can have all of those sins erased. And you have new life and new hope in Jesus Christ. Don't delay come to Jesus this very day. So, first of all, to go deeper with God, a holy dissatisfaction with where you're at. Secondly, you need to understand God's abundant goodness. You need to understand His sovereign grace. You need to understand His holiness, forgiveness, and justice. But there's a final important point. To go deeper with God... You need to be concerned, not just for yourself, but for all of God's people. In other words, when Moses is praying here, God, show me your glory. The thought of it isn't, God, I want to have this deeper experience with you. And if all of these stiff-necked, obstinate, idolatrous people want to perish in the wilderness, that's their tough luck. I want to go deeper with you. That's not what he's praying Moses here is praying as the mediator of God's covenant. And he is, as we already saw in chapter 32, Moses was willing to be blotted out of God's book of life if he would only forgive these idolatrous, sinful people. So he has a heart for them, and we see it in verse 9 again. If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though these people are so obstinate. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. And take us as your own possession. So, in his prayer, Moses is thinking about others. And that's very important. You should pray that you'll go deeper with God and see His glory, but not so that you'll be a notch above everyone else. Not so that you can brag about, I know theology and you don't, haha. Not so you can win theological arguments the next time you get in a debate with someone. That's not the point. The reason that you should want to go deeper with the Lord is so that He can use you more effectively to minister to others. That they will get a glimpse of God through your earthen vessel and they'll say, you know, I want what you've got. Tell me about it. And you're the channel. Just a little flicker of God's glory, but enough that it whets someone else's appetite. Now Moses' response here to the revelation of God's glory is in verse 8. He made haste to bow low to the earth and worship. And again, that should be our response. As I said, it's not so you can lord it over others with your knowledge of theology. It's not so that you can take pride in your great knowledge of God's attributes or any of that if you really know our good sovereign gracious forgiving holy just God you're going to get on your face real fast and you're going to worship him that's the end of all theology right there is the worship of God and you know that's what Paul did when he gets to the end of that great Romans 8, and then 9, 10, and 11. He has just swept off his feet. And he cries out, and I think it was an exclamation in Romans eleven thirty three to 36. Oh, oh, the depth. I think he probably stammered as he said this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become His counselor and who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And then the crescendo, to Him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. And so no matter where you're at with the Lord, I want to encourage you, you might need to adjust your schedule. You need to make time for this. You need to plan for it. It ain't going to happen spontaneously. It's like romance in your marriage. You've got to think about it and say, Lord, I want to know you. And Lord, would you show me your glory? And you plan for it. Do that this week. Let's pray. If you're here without Jesus, you are without God and you are without hope in this world. But the good news is, He invites you, come unto Me. Come unto Me. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let him drink of the water of life without cost. And God gives freely of His grace to every sinner who comes to the cross of Christ. And trust in Jesus for eternal life. And that's my invitation to you right now. Don't let June 30th went by. July, don't let July 1st go by without meeting Jesus. And if you're in the spiritual doldrums, just kind of ho-hum, complacent, come back to the Lord and say, Oh God, God, Would you show me your glory? Dear Father, we need to see more and more of Jesus. So I pray you would reveal yourself to us through your word. Not so that we would just have an individual experience, but for the good of your people. That We all might get a greater glimpse of your glory for Jesus' sake. Amen.